Behind every song is a voice, and every voice is a story. The journeys behind the voices brings life to the music that shapes each of us. Brought to you by Visible Music College and in partnership with the largest online Christian music site new release today, this is Behind the Tunes, and I am your host, Austin Black. Together, we will explore those journeys, the journeys behind the artists that shape the landscape of today's music. Today is part two of our conversation with Aaron Keyes. We'll hear about his 10,000 Fathers Worship School, a great embarrassing onstage moment, and the ever-popular Rapid Fire. This is Behind the Tunes. the last segment really talking about the the music that we have in our churches and that's being uh, put out even now and, and, and just kind of looking at both uh, uh, through through multiple lenses of, of what we're singing and what we're creating and, and what's being sung in our churches uh, do you remember just for fun for a second do you remember the first song you ever wrote uh yeah I do it was terrible yeah. <laughs> I ask I love to ask people that because that's the literal response from everybody. It was uh-huh. awful. Let's um, try. Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna uh, we're gonna get you to to record that soon and put it out for us. All right. <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> um, so, as you began to grow, how, let me ask you this: How old were you when you wrote that first song? Do you remember? Uh, I was nineteen. Okay, so that's when you're in college. You're really mm-hmm. beginning to. Uh, get some roots as far as being a worship leader and growing into what that means and, and really what God had created you to be. During that time, were there uh, specific types of songwriters that you were drawn to, um, to kind of that you got, I guess, inspiration or guidance from? Or were you just kind yeah, of find sure. your own way? It was some of those guys I mentioned. So David Wilcox was, or still is, a singer-songwriter from Asheville, North Carolina, which was pretty close to where I went to college in Greenville, South Carolina, about an hour away. And the way that he played fingerstyle and the way that he told stories, even setting up a song, he played and spoke so beautifully at the same time. I was like, I, I want to learn to do that. Um, he also wrote what I thought were really amazing songs, and I still love his songwriting. But um, he had a huge, huge effect on my songwriting, even still to this day, um, wanting to be both... Uh, you know, intentional in arranging instrumental parts that are beautiful and work together, not just like play these chords, and to communicate poetically, not just prosaically. So mm-hmm. how can we say this more beautifully? Um, how can we do it more compellingly, not just informatively? So now you, you, you've been writing songs for, I guess, 20 plus years now, you say. Um, now, what's the, what's the songwriting process like for you? Uh, it's different every time, but my strength is probably on the lyrical side of things, and uh, I love helping be. I I love serving as like a lyric doctor for a lot of artists. Now. Okay, yeah. So I care so much. I do care about the music and I care about the melody, but um, from where I sit, it doesn't take that long to come up with a great melody. Um, not that it's an easy thing. It just doesn't take tons of time right 
Um, but it does take me usually, literally, uh, at least a couple weeks, if not months, to get a lyric as strong as I can possibly get it. And I've learned a ton um, about this from much better writers than myself. So Stuart Town is a friend of mine. We've written a few songs together. And he told me years ago that, um, you know, in Christ Alone, he wrote that lyric for In Christ Alone. He said, you know, that that song took 40 verses. And I was like, what? Wow. He said, yeah, I wrote 40 verses to get those four. And by the time I finished the fourth one, the final fourth one, um, I didn't think that the first one was strong enough anymore, but I had to turn it in. It was overdue. And I'm thinking, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He's my light, my strength, my song. It's like, that's pretty strong, man. Right, <laughs> you know right. But I, I thought it was just an, it was a fascinating kind of eye-opening conversation because our tendency could be to think, oh, he's just an outlier. He's just really good. I'm not that gifted. Um, he's really talented. I'm not that talented. Well, he obviously is very gifted and he's very talented, but he also works really hard and he gives it the time that it takes to become that strong. Um, and the kind of songs that I've always resonated most with, I certainly love the anointed, simple, anthem you know Waymaker is a huge song right now um i remember the first time i heard that song i remember where i was the first time i heard here i am to worship i remember where i was the first time i heard how great is our god i was like whoa i've never there's something about this i've never heard before yeah um so none of those songs are like you know theological powerhouses they're not trying to be um, but the songs that I usually resonated with and led the most over the years were songs, a lot more songs kind of coming out of the, the European and English side of things. I loved the, they seem to really be going after more of that. Let's, let's talk about God thing here. Um, and so, oh, good grief. Um, I'm trying to answer your question without talking for 25 minutes. No, you're fine. Um, I, I'm just always trying to steer lyrics towards being um, rich with language about God and about uh, the gospel or about Christ or the Holy Spirit and not just rich in, in giving more language to our experience of those things or our response to those things. And then I'm also pretty particular about trying to steer songs away from theology that I don't think is particularly helpful. Um, and I have to steer a lot of songs away from that stuff. Um, you know, if you think of an e EQ spectrum with like 10 different LEDs that could be lighting up from three on the base and three in the middle and four up top or something like that, certain aspects of the gospel have been communicated in modern worship music, turned up like all the way to a 10. And then other parts of the gospel, when it comes to contemporary worship, have been on mute. Um, certain frequencies, like we're not even hearing them. And historically, throughout the church and throughout the worship of God, they've been there, they've been present, but but they're not anymore. And you know, there's reasons for that. When um, when John Piper's theology is is driving this thing called passion, and so now all these songs start coming out that are there's a lot of amazing anointed stuff that God does through passion, and He used that in my life, and He used it in a ton of people's lives. But there's for sure like a very heavy theology that's driven by John Piper in that that steers every song about the gospel into certain language, right? And yeah. it's usually not particularly broad. It's pretty narrow. It's there's a debt that's being paid. Um, you know, Jesus died so that we could be forgiven. There's even a 
there's a new song. There's a big song. Everyone sings. I can't believe they sing it. Uh, but it says, <laughs> um, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Wow, that is destructive. Yeah. To think that Jesus bought forgiveness. First of all, that's that's mixing metaphors in a way that would make any alchemist blush. Like, how do you buy forgiveness? You can't. So that's conflating redemption language of a, a debt that's being canceled um, and forgiveness, which is a free gift. But yeah. when you start saying, Jesus bought my forgiveness, see, I'm especially leery of any theology that makes us love Jesus and fear the Father. Mm. Uh and I think this is me. Now you're going to, I'm going to get myself in all kinds of trouble. Here. No, you're great, but man. I love it. I think like because a lot of our songwriters and worship leaders haven't been theologically trained in seminary, they haven't done the hard work. Um, they haven't gotten the master's degrees or read the original languages. They just take it and run with it. Yeah. And then they recreate what they've heard. They restate it in different language, but they kind of keep the same ideas going when... Goodness me, like how does 2 Corinthians 5 work with that lyric I just brought up? 2 Corinthians 5 says, you know, after it says, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. Then it says, uh, it says, hang on, it says, um, I'm blanking. It goes, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. Mm. So, so God is, God is not like killing Jesus so that he can forgive us. He's dying in Jesus to show us he always has been. Yep. Um, he is so forgiving and he's so gracious and he's so loving and the cross isn't changing God's mind about us. It's changing ours about him. It's showing us what he's always been like, you know, but so many worship songs and even the ones that a lot of people will bring to me that need to be finished or they're stuck on whatever, um, I'm trying to steer every worship song I possibly can away from separating the son from the father, which is mm -hmm. a historical heresy in the church, by the way. Right, right. Uh, and um, trying to steer them towards a more thoughtful and more um, broad appreciation of the wonder of the gospel. It all becomes very narrow, and everyone just keeps trying to cram songs out that are this one spectrum on the EQ, and they're ignoring these other nine frequencies that we could be singing about when it comes to the cross, you know. Everyone wants, you know, and so I think we have to be really, really careful about songwriting and even our song choosing because, um, I mean, there's a great song, Jesus Paid It All. It's a great old hymn. I've recorded it. I love the song. But we have to be careful because if people think that Jesus paid some debt to Satan now that we could be free, we have to be careful there right. because Jesus didn't just like pay a debt. He obliterated the system that said we ever owed anything in the first place. Yeah. He, you know, he doesn't just pay our debt. He cancels them. Um, and so because it's hard in a song to say all of that that I just said, we have to figure out how to get it into 16 lines into four minutes or whatever else. <laughs> we have to be particularly like ruthless with finding the right language. And so that takes, um, that takes some artistic training. Uh, that takes creative writing. Uh, lyrical, uh, compositional kind of tools and prowess. So again, between needing a seminary degree and needing a songwriting degree, most worship 
leaders and songwriters don't have either of those. Right. And so we shouldn't be too surprised that a lot of songs are coming out that are kind of banal um, or they are particularly uh, destructive. Yeah. You know, yeah. because the writers haven't had someone helping them think through, you actually can't say that. That's harmful <laughs> to say that. <laughs> well, and it, <laughs> I love this, by the way. This is a great conversation because it, uh, it's so true, but I think it helps us to, to shine a light on, listen, we, we go so narrow so often, but we're going to spend all of eternity with, with God the Father and, and continually learning of who He is and glorifying Him and honoring Him. All he is. We have so much to write about. Mm-hmm. We have so much to share about Him. We have true. so much to celebrate about him and and really just listening to you is just really just playing in my heart and my mind oh my my goodness how often do i just settle for just the little bit you know and there's this there's this abundant life of of knowing him and growing in him and 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 growing in in an understanding of who he is and and i think we as musicians have a responsibility Maybe, maybe that's where we have to begin to look back and say you know we have a responsibility here um, to really begin to illuminate not just certain aspects, but we we have the opportunity through music to illuminate uh, who God is and to bring us together in celebration of that. Mm. Yeah. I, I've never done the actual study on this, but I've heard it taught that Sol, you know, at the height of Solomon's reign, that was when Israel's borders were as big as they ever would be. Um, I heard someone teach that that was 10% of the land, the, the borders that God had prescribed. And I heard, you know, that taught as, that's probably pretty good uh, picture of all of us. As far as we've ever gone in the Lord, we're scratching the surface of what He has for us and what He's marked out for us. And I, I think you see that in Deuteronomy 4, where Moses, you know, Moses is near the end of his life with Deuteronomy, of course, and he, he says, I think it's about verse 32, he says something to this effect. He goes, Sovereign Lord, you've begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. Is there any other God who can do the things that you do? And I love that because Moses has seen more at that point in his life than any of us have ever seen in ours. And he goes, you're just kind of getting started, aren't you, God? Yeah. Like, I've, I've, you've gotten started showing me what you're like. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that because it gets at what you're saying. There's so much more. The, you know, the lack isn't on God's side where we've exhausted him. It's we've grown tired of searching. Mm, goodness. Well, w- with that, bridging into, you did start a school, 10,000 Fathers. How long ago did you start this school? Yeah, 12 years ago. We uh, we bought a house where we could have worship leaders live with us uh, for six months or a year at a time. We did that for several years, and it was wonderful. We had guys live with us from all over the world. Uh, but then we started getting more and more people wanted to come to school who had wives and kids. So I had one guy who... He reached out and said, hey, you know, my wife and I have prayed about it. We have five kids, um, but I need to be trained to do what God's called me to do. So can I come live with you for six months? We're like, uh, that's not a good idea. Let's let's figure out another model. So we about nine years ago, we started offering intensives where people come for a week at a time. And then they do weekly coaching online through Zoom calls, which now the whole world is familiar with. Um, And they do that in small groups. And so now it's an 18 month process where people come once a, once every six months they come for a week and we get to do the interpersonal meals together 
you know, sharing drinks together, worshiping, praying, being in the room together, a lot of the incarnational stuff that's just hard to do over Zoom. Um, but they also get to go back to their real life and implement it. Yeah. Because, you know, when we used to do come live with us for a year, it was kind of like your life's on hold yep. for a year and you can just take it in and it's kind of awesome. But then who knows how much of it's going to stick when you get home. Um, so there's pros and cons to both models, but I really like this model now because one, we don't have people living with us all the time, which is a nice break. <laughs> and then two, I think that the, the fruit lasts, you know, it takes yeah. longer. 18 months is a long time. Um, it's a deep dive. I mean, what we get into with those, those six months, the first six are about the character of a worship pastor. And the big question in that first six months is, you know, if, if you lost your ability to play music today, will your church still recognize you as a leader tomorrow? Mm. Because that is a historical novelty. That there's never been a, there's never been the reality that there is now that is de facto, that because you can lead us musically, we assume you are worth following spiritually. That is nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in church history. That's brand new, only in about the last uh, 40 years. So... The number one question there that we have to ask worship leaders in track one is, are you leading because of your musical gifting or because of your godliness and your character and your depth in the Lord and scripture and these kinds of things that will actually persist long after your musical genre uh, is out of fashion, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So then the second six months are all about the competency. So you actually do need to work on your skills. You need to be a better writer than just... Uh, Jesus, I want to nibble on your ear kind of thing. Right. You know, like, so six months on the competency. And then the last six months is on the ultimate calling, which is discipleship, like actually reproducing. So we teach like how to develop culture, how to raise up uh, many more people in their own context and things like that. So it's, it's, it's a proper school. I mean, it's accredited. You know, it's partnered up with Visibles for um, both undergrad degree completion and uh, master's level work. It's also partnered with Northern Seminary. We've got other seminaries that we're talking to who are partnering with us uh, or wanting to partner with us. We're trying to figure that out. And it's just cool because these places who've been training pastors for hundreds of years are looking at what's going on in the world and saying, we're not doing anything for worship pastors. And these worship pastors are, uh, they are as influential in their communities as these senior pastors, senior pastors have doctorates of theology. Mm-hmm. Worship pastors have holes in their jeans and capos. Yeah. And now they've, they've got just as much time to shape what this community believes about God and their role in the world as someone who's studied culture and Ecclesiastes, you know? So, yeah, right. I'm encouraged that schools are getting on board finally. Um, but I mean, like, you know, Wheaton just last year, I was talking to the chairman of their board and they just built an $80 million building for their sacred music program, which I love sacred music, but um, that's probably not the future, not at least the next 10 years of worship music, chamber choirs, and, and high church. <laughs> they, they just spent $80 million on a building that's great for that stuff, and they don't do one thing for worship leaders, not mm-hmm. contemporary worship leaders. So, uh, and of course, their, their guy was saying, what are we doing? Like, how are we missing this? But everybody's been missing it. So I'm encouraged that things are coming around. Visible is here. Um, There are great places you can go and engage both your spirit, your heart with the Lord, but also your hands, your skills, and your head. we got to have all of that working together. Yeah, I think that's um, 
that's normally insightful in in is it's, it's I feel like we're late to the party, you know, as a whole of, of everybody realizing um, that hey, we we really need to to pour resources into this because, like you said, mo- um, oftentimes in our in our churches, it's like hey, you you can sing, why don't you? <laughs> Why don't right. you lead us to the throne of God? You know, and we just don't yeah. process it. And so, uh, so goodness, if, if you're out there, your worship leader, uh, he, you know, he spoke of Visible, Visible Music College, which is a sponsor of this show. Um, and then 10,000 Fathers that you can learn about through AaronKeys.com. Uh, and, uh, and and just understand that, yes, it's not about uh, just how talented you are. It takes all of it. And, and we have opportunity to really uh, be those that set the table, you know, and, and, and lead those to the, the throne of God. Yeah. 
Aaron, you and I were just talking a moment ago that that even just right now you've you've launched something called Mere Worship uh, for those that maybe can't uh, dive deep off into to Ten Thousand Fathers. Share more about what this is. Yeah, I, I'm really excited about this because we've had so many people who have wanted to come to worship school but haven't been able to. They've they've just had a baby or they've just settled into a new job or they can't get away, you know, and start. Because it is, and it's an intense process. It's 18 months. It's accredited grad school. Um, so I've put together basically an online training opportunity for people. It's not all the same content, but it's the same heartbeat. And if it's basically digestible teachings, so between 5- and 14-minute teachings that you watch on video. Um, and then there are uh, coaching groups you can jump into. You can even do one-on-one with me if it's helpful. And I think it's a way to help get a lot of people um, some instant encouragement and resources for how to think about shifting the worship culture at their church. Because most of these worship leaders, you know, who are, who are paying attention at least to this conversation, they want to see God do stuff in their church. They, they're giving their lives to it. They want to see their culture shift, and they want their people to worship in spirit and in truth. And they want, they want all this stuff. They just don't know how to start moving in that direction or or they don't know how to keep things moving they've spun out somewhere along the way so mere worship a lot like 10,000 fathers is something we're trying to put in people's hands or invite them into 10,000 fathers opens a couple times a year like a school but mere worship people can start at any point and without having to make any big long-term commitment um, it's also not this huge financial investment like 10,000 fathers or seminary would be so I think it's going to help a lot of people. I hope it does. Um, and people can check it out at mirrorworship.com. So CS, the reason, sorry, the last thing I'll say is no. uh, the reason we called it that, I was talking to um, a pastor in California named John Wartburg, who is another hero of mine. And when I was telling him about my heart for worship, he said, you know, that's what CS Lewis did with mere Christianity. I was like, what? He goes, yeah, he, he was trying to take a lot of great thoughtfulness around the Christian faith and explain it in short enough and simple enough uh, teachings so that anybody could grab a hold of it. And so I started reading all about it, and that is that is what C.S. Lewis did. But I think, I don't have it in front of me, I think it was between 1940 and 1944, he did a series of talks on the BBC, and those became mere Christianity. Basically just trying to boil things down simple enough, but helpful enough, um, and broad enough to um, to be able to help a lot of different people from different backgrounds. So that's Mere Worship, and it just opened two weeks ago. We have, um, I don't know, there's several hundred leaders in there now, and I think it's really, it's being really well-received. I love it, and and I think the best part is now it's it's C.S. Lewis and Aaron Keyes. Like, y'all are in the same <laughs> breath now, right? Well, I am very <laughs> clear about this in the promo. We're not even close to as smart as C.S. Lewis. Um, we're just trying to learn from what he did and follow in his footsteps. Love it. Well, you, you, I want to go back to just you kind of uh, in music in a, in a general sense. Now, you said you, you, you grew up learning piano. How old were you when you began playing piano? Eight. I was eight. Eight yeah, years old. Grade. All right. Mm-hmm. So, so I, know, I know you were somewhat sheltered growing up musically yeah. as far as the outside world. Who, so who, who were you listening to at that point, like growing up? Oh, well, I mean, I was, I was Bach and Chopin and stuff, but what what got me really interested in piano was uh, Scott Joplin, all that ragtime stuff. So like Maple Leaf Rag and the Entertainer, yeah. that was the stuff that that could light up the room, you know. Still to this day, like it, I mean, it all it all sounds kind of like an old western, but um, I do love that kind of 
that kind of piano. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I love it. All right, so this is just for fun. Um, if you, uh, you're, you're out, you're playing, you're traveling, whatever. If you could open for anybody, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, that is such a stressful question. <laughs> Gosh. If I could open for them, um, I mean, I guess I'd say the Beatles. Oh, yeah. Uh, because, you know, they'd have a great crowd. And, <laughs> and they were always trying new things. They were always venturing into new sounds. They were never just like this one thing. Um, and so I guess I would love to open. I would love to, to try an audience that was that willing to go new places yeah they were definitely willing to go new places that's for sure uh do you have a favorite so when you're playing do you have a favorite song to play live uh wow i love these questions it changes every time my favorite song to play live is usually the last one that i wrote yeah yeah <laughs> it's the one that i'm most excited about and i kind of you know i've never had like big hits or anything so I don't have to, no one's leaving a night of worship or if I do a concert, no one's leaving that like sad that I didn't play whatever song. <laughs> so I can just do whatever. <laughs> and so I'm usually most excited to see if what, uh, what I spent a few months on thinking will work great actually does. Yeah. You know, I, I, I make this joke. Uh, we have a mutual friend, Matt who's been through 10,000 Fathers. And so yep. I'll, I'll play with him sometimes and I, I yell at him all the time because just when he, he'll pick a song, I love it. But he rotates songs so much that, oh, I fell in love with this song, I love this song. And he never puts it on the list ever again. <laughs> I'm like, what's wrong with uh -huh. you, jerk? Um, uh -huh. All right, so now let's look at music you've recorded for a second, just albums you put out. Do you okay. have one that you look back at and, and, and whether it was the music side of it or the heart behind it or just the creative process that went into it, is there one that stands out in your mind that's just kind of uh, above the others just in your heart? Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess that the Living Room record we made about 10 years ago, um, I mean, that's been the one that was the most surprising. We did it just by ourselves. We produced it in-house, you know, I mean, literally in my house. <laughs> Um, and this was kind of before that was the thing. Um, so we, we, you know, for a long time, I told you, we've had worship leaders live in our home and we would do worship at nights, um, in my living room. And so during one of those years when we had some guys living with us, we just did a night of worship with my band and we invited some of our community around and it was not fancy. Um, it was super, uh, homespun. But those those recordings of the songs um, have have uh, you know outrun any other studio stuff that I've ever done. It was so funny. Um, people, I guess people were just so hungry for hearing the song, not having to work so hard to hear the song through the production, you know, and yeah. through the style and through the parts. Um, we just started stripping stuff way down, and so we recorded like Sovereign Over Us, and uh, I think. I mean, that Michael W. Smith like heard that and fell in love with it and made it the title track to his next record. And that song, I'm, I just got a, an email from some pastors in Korea last week, and they sent me a version of it that is in Korean and in oh, English, wow. and it was so beautiful. That song has kind of gone around the world. And what's funny is a couple years before we did the living room version, um, we I did a 
really cool version. I think it's really cool with Stu G. So Stu uh, G from Delirious produced that my studio record called Dwell, and we had these amazing musicians on there. So Paul Mabry was playing drums. He played for all the Hillsong and the United kind of stuff, and he wrote this drum part, and it's so awesome and funky and it's it is a tricky drum part like uh you know if you're gonna try to do that version at your church uh give your drummer a heads up because (laughs) it it could go really bad and i remember sitting in the control room while paul tracked it and then he came in and of course he played it amazing and he came in and he goes i can't wait to hear church drummers try to hear try to play that (laughs) i was like oh no what have we done you know We've done something terrible. Like Chris Tomlin would never do that, right? <laughs> so, like, I, I, um, I really want to be inspired. I don't want to be just bored, and I don't care about the middle of the bell curve. Like, I, I want to, I want to be inspired, and I want to help inspire people. So, I'm really proud of some of the stuff that we did on several of those studio records. But I'm also mortified of plenty of it. Sure. Oh, for sure. We. We could have that. We know those stories for another day. I can understand that definitely. Uh, now you, now you've been playing live music for you know yeah, two decades, yeah. yeah, a couple decades now. Uh-huh. So many great things happen, you know, just through the medium of live music and the connection we can have with people. Um, just the opportunity we have to connect. Music is such a such a special place to connect. But there's also really embarrassing things that happen sometimes in these live settings. Do you have a most embarrassing moment? Oh, easy. Well, I'll have to pick. There, I'll give you one. There are several. Um, so my band, we were leading worship for this big college conference, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or something like that. And this is when, um, you know, Young and Free didn't exist yet. United was still kind of doing their YouTube rock thing or Coldplay kind of thing. And we were trying to do, I was really into um, EDM and dance music. And I was just like, why are worship bands not putting out 128 BPM bangers? Like, this is what gets people bouncing in the clubs, you know. Um, Why don't we do this? And so we started trying to write these songs. So I had a DJ that traveled with my band for about five years, and we wrote a lot of songs like that. Um, So anyway, one of the uh, conferences we played was this college, couple thousand college students, and typically, like, like usual, they're like, hey, look, you know, before before the thing starts, it's an hour before, and they're like, all right, countdown's going to come down. Right at zero, we want you guys up there playing high energy. Get everybody pumped. It's going to be great. And we're like, awesome. Love it. So our DJ is going to go out about two minutes before and start putting some textures down. And it's going to build and get get to where it's just four on the floor right at the zero, you know, and the whole band will come out. And so we're like, great. It's awesome. So he goes out and he starts playing. We've got our inners in. It sounds amazing in our ears. And so we go get in place and right at the zero, it hits hard. Four on the floor. Band is in. We're doing this first EDM kind of song, dancing around, and I'm just like, uh, I'm like, Are you guys ready for this? This isn't your grandma's church. This oh. isn't rock and roll. This is the future. And in my ears, it sounds awesome, and I'm dancing around like an idiot. Well, it turns out no one can hear anything <laughs> except my vocal mic. <laughs> Nothing is on in the house. The sound guy has everything muted except my vocal mic. And I am berating people like, can you hear this? And I'm gyrating around on the stage like, this is the future. <laughs> and everyone is looking at me like. Insulting their grandmas on the way yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're like, 
the future's weird and uh you need to go see a shrink and um so this is the future became like that's our band password for everything now uh if you want to get on the wi-fi passwords this is the future it's it's become legend but how, it really happened so how long did it take for you to realize that these people can't hear anything i never realized it was after i after that oh. song i came off and found out that's unbelievable <laughs> that is yeah that wins man that is uh wow that's true story i love it i love it. do you remember what state you were in no i've repressed it i, I listen it's understandable understandable <laughs> well again we're here with aaron keys uh worship leader worship pastor founder of Ten Thousand fathers uh, worship school aaronkeys.com and we got one more last segment right here rapid fire all right can you, you think Let's you can go. survive this come on Let's i do love it. this what's your favorite color blue favorite ice cream flavor chocolate what was your first car nissan pathfinder nissan pathfinder did uh, did you have it for a long time yeah i had it for probably 10 years all right all right favorite cartoon growing up calvin and hobbs calvin and what calvin and hobbs i've got i'll google that later calvin and hobbs you don't know calvin and hobbs no what is that this bill is watterson no oh my goodness maybe i was the sheltered one growing up maybe i'll google it later i'll see what i can find um name one of the seven dwarfs dopey do you do you identify with him uh my wife would say yes all right that's fine that's fine it's just fair. <laughs> <laughs> all right if the toilet paper roll is really low and do you replace it or do you leave it for someone else I always replace it, and I replace it with two or three. Oh, that's to nice. make sure it doesn't happen again. I'm going I'm to leave it for somebody else, and my wife Ugh. is bitter about it, but it's fine. Ugh. It's fine. What's the most useless talent that you have? Huh. Let me think. Useless talent. I, uh, I read the dictionary when I was in high school, <laughs> and so I love language. And my wife would say a lot of that's useless. <laughs> if you got, I, would, I would say really, if you got more than one, it's, it's somewhat because I'll just find somebody else to, to, uh, to help me out on that one. I got, okay. I got enough, I got enough Spanish to, to take care of what I need to as well. Oh, nice. Love it. Love it. So you wrote, wait, oh, wait, I, you read the dictionary? You just, you just well, read yeah. it? Yeah. I, well, I loved learning about words and I would get on these vocab books. It was like getting ready for the S, uh, SAT, you know? Okay. Um, and so, yeah, I read through the dictionary, and uh, that was probably pretty useless. Did, how old were you when you did this? High school? Uh, yeah, probably 17 or 18. I've You're the first person I've ever met that said I read through the dictionary. Well, I mean, I'm an airhead. I'm nerdy. I, I was like a really good student, uh, and now I write a lot of lyrics. So, hey. Yeah, it worked out. Proved, it worked out. helpful. <laughs> It worked out well for you because you've written much better songs than I have. I'm a, I was over there reading boxcar children. So I, I promise I've written worse songs than you have too. <laughs> uh, all right, what's your favorite junk food? Uh, Butterfinger. All right, time machine for one day. Where do you go? <sighs> that is such a great question. <laughs> time machine for one day? Uh, I would like to be at, I would like to be at Pentecost. It's been a good day, wouldn't it? That'd be pretty cool. All right. Ask, ask my wife that question of the day. She said, Greece. 
was like, well, when? Like, <laughs> say, like, just get on an airplane and go there. All right. Yeah. Day of Pentecost. All right. In the movie of your life, the Aaron Keyes story, who's the actor that plays you? Oh, goodness. Um, Brad Pitt. Come on. Come on with us. That's right. <laughs> you know, I'm with you. No, the reason is because um, not, not only is he devastatingly good looking, <laughs> I'm joking. Um, I like every. I think I like every movie I've seen him in. So I'll see anything that he's in because everything that I've seen that he was in, I liked. So I'll, whoever screens his scripts needs a raise because <laughs> you know you see some movies with with Seth Rogen or Will Smith, and you're like, that is a. Why do they ever agree to that? <laughs> I've never thought that with a Brad Pitt movie. All so right. I would want to see my life if brad pitt were playing it because it'd be pretty awesome all right aaron keys the true life story starring <laughs> brad pitt i can see it we can we'll yeah we'll, i'll email him we'll see what we can get Again, done my wife would be okay with this i bet she would all yeah, right and then she'll what? play herself <laughs> so <I bet> she <laughs> <laughs> all right what's something you hate that everyone loves the american office really can't stand it i loved the british one so much I love Ricky Gervais. I've cried my eyes out watching some of his shows. And like a lot of times when BBC makes something and then NBC tries to make an American version of it, it loses all of the sophisticated, nuanced, and sadness. It's all too bubblegummy and clean and three jokes on a page. So I despise it, but I can't tell my kids that because they love it. Do you, do you, watch, do you still watch The British Office? Uh, I haven't in a while, no, but I would love to watch it again. I've watched uh, everything he's put out. Have your kids watched it? No, it's way too rated R. Okay, see, I've never <laughs> seen. It. I got you. That's good. That's good to know. I won't. I won't. I won't throw it on with the kids tonight. That's good. No, enough. it might be. It might. I don't know. Maybe it's. I haven't probably seen it in ten years, but okay. it it was a genre. You know, it was a game changer. Really, the the first that first British Office. They did something no one else had ever done. They broke the fourth wall, and you know, Ricky starts looking at the camera after a joke, and um, that it was the it was the it was the they were they were moving the goalposts around a little bit with that first show, and then it just everyone started doing it, and I lost a lot of interest. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. You know, copycats, right? Uh, well, Aaron, man, it's been a ton of fun, man. I uh, I appreciate you so much for coming on and hanging out today. This is great. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate you, and I hope this podcast goes great, and hopefully we'll get to actually hang out in person sometime. Hey, sounds great. Again, this is Aaron Keys, AaronKeys.com. Uh, check him out, uh, 10,000 Fathers, Mere Worship. Uh, check it out, and uh, Aaron, we'll talk to you soon, man. Thanks so much. I hope so. Bye. You've been listening to Behind the Tunes with Austin Black, produced by Grayson Rucker. A special thank you to our sponsor, Visible Music College a music and worship school that trains and disciples students for the music industry and the church. You can learn more about them at visible.edu. And you can reach the show at behindthetunes at gmail.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next time as we go Behind the Tunes.